more accurate your representation of the world, the better your decisions will be as a result. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we sit down with Annie Duke to talk about her journey as an author and as a professional poker player. Annie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I mean, predicting the turn, it sounds so pokery. I'm very excited to be here. Hey, it fits very, uh, very nicely into that. So I want to start with uh, the fascinating journey that you've had. While many people, of course, know you for your life as a professional poker player, before that, you were awarded a National Science Foundation fellowship to study cognitive psychology at University of Pennsylvania. How'd you go from the world of academia to the world of poker? Oh, gosh, right? That's such a weird... Well, I have to say, I think it's not as weird today. But in the 90s, it was certainly weird because poker was not on television. And there was an online poker. And I'm not sure that most people thought that it was even a profession. I think they probably thought it was, um, you know, more in the category of vice (laughs) than vocation. So... Basically, what happened was I was I was doing my PhD work at the University of Pennsylvania, as you said, in, in cognitive science. And as I was going out for my what are called job talks, which is you know obviously interviews to become a professor, I've been struggling with a stomach illness that really got quite bad right toward the end of when I was in at UPenn. And and so I realized that I needed to postpone for a year because I, I ended up in the hospital for a couple of weeks and then really needed a lot of time to recuperate. So. Here I was, and I found myself without my fellowship because I wasn't in school anymore. And I really kind of just needed something to do to bridge the gap in terms of money. And I didn't, obviously, I wasn't going to reboot a new career. I was completely intending to go become a professor. And I did, couldn't really, I didn't really want to go take a full-time job because I wasn't feeling well. I was recuperating. So my brother had already been playing poker for a long time. He had moved to New York when he was 18, and he was very much into chess. And from chess, he sort of transitioned over into poker and he was actually pretty successful by that point. And so he actually was the one who suggested that as a way to bridge the gap. So, you know, I mean, I I tried it and obviously, you know, the meantime turned into 18 years because I I did that professionally from 1994 to 2012. But that that's really kind of the way that I got into it was really very much by an act of, you know, luck rather than anything else. So with that in mind, you know, things have kind of come full circle. As you mentioned, you you stopped that in 2012, and your next career has been as an author and a public speaker. Your first book, you know, Thinking in Bets, it's one of my personal favorite books, really in business in a long, long time. And I think your commentary that life is like poker, not chess, is a point I use so often as I'm, you know, giving talks and discussing the business world. Can you talk a little bit more about that viewpoint of why you think life is like poker and not chess? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the thing that, that I think the thing that happened to me just sort of on this journey was, you know, as I transitioned from cognitive psychology, where you're certainly thinking about learning and decision making, for sure, into poker, which is obviously a really high stakes, fast paced decision making environment. You know, what what I kind of thought intuitively, I think, was that, well, this is very feedback rich. You know, you're you're making decisions and you're sort of getting feedback right away. And and obviously if someone's losing their chips, 
they're going to kind of figure out that maybe they need to, you know, over the long run, obviously not on a single hand, but, you know, sort of over the long run, if they're, if they're losing money, they should be able to see that feedback and then, and then adjust their decision-making accordingly and become, and become better at the game. And while that's true for a handful of players, it's not true for most people who play the game. They're actually, the learning environment actually turns out to be quite unkind in terms of your ability to really kind of take that feedback and, and use it in order to become better. And I started to really explore why that is. And, and it has to do with this very deep difference between chess and poker. So I'll kind of walk you through it. So Dave, if you and I play a game of chess and you win and we go over to somebody else and we say, hey, we played a game of chess and I know you didn't watch any of the moves. You saw nothing about the game, but we're going to just tell you what the result was. Dave won the game of chess. And we said to them, who do you think made the better decisions in the game? What do you think their answer would be? Me, because I won. Right. And they'd be right to say so, by the way. They'd probably be right almost 100% of the time. But if we go and ask them about poker and assume it, you know, it's not me and you don't know something about my poker skill, but it's, a, you know, it's like Dave and Susan played poker. And they played for like an hour, you know, about the same amount of time it would take to play a game of chess. And, and Dave ended up winning against Susan. And then we went over and asked somebody, hey, they were playing poker for an hour and Dave ended up winning. Who do you think made better decisions? Like how much would you bet on your opinion there? What do you think they would say? Yeah, I think they would try to say probably the one that the person who won. So me. And when I asked them how much they'd be willing to bet on that, what do you think they would say? Probably not a lot. Probably not a lot, but they would in chess, right? If you said, yeah. okay, Dave and Annie played a game of chess and, and Dave won, like, who do you think made better decisions? They'd say Dave. And I said, how much do you want to bet on that? And they'd say, how much? Like as much as I can. So this sort of reveals this, this difference, which is that when we're playing poker, there's this really strong influence of uncertainty in, in kind of two forms. One has to do with hidden information. So I, I don't know what your hand is. And the other has to do with simple luck, right? So I can have a hand where I'm going to win the hand 82% of the time. And what that means is 18% of the time, I'm not going to win the hand. So when you observe that I lose the hand, is it because of bad luck or is it not? And this becomes particularly difficult because at the end of the hand, the cards tend not to be revealed. You know, It's not like when you're watching on TV and the, and the camera can see the hands as a player, mostly I don't know what your hand is when I'm making those decisions. And then you have this really strong influence of luck and you can see that you don't have that in chess, right? Not, not those. I can see where all the pieces are. So I don't have that problem. I know what your position is. And then the other thing is that those pieces are only going to move because of an active skill. In other words, you choose to move the piece or I choose to move my piece and nobody's like, you know, I don't know, rolling dice. And you know, if it's snake eyes, you lose your queen or something. And what that means is that because you're removing that strong influence of uncertainty, we can take the quality of the outcome and we can say something real about the quality of the decisions that underlie them, those outcomes, but we can't do that in poker. And this really unlocks kind of what the problem for poker players is and why it's such an unkind learning environment is that when I lose a hand and I'm trying to figure out why, I now have this sort of escape hatch that allows me to not really confront the possibility that maybe my decision-making wasn't so good. And that escape hatch is luck. I can say I got unlucky. And 
vice versa, when I win a hand, I can kind of downplay that and I can say that I played really well. And that really unlocked for me sort of what's happening is that once you introduce uncertainty into an environment, that what you're giving people the leeway to do is, is sort of that's where all these cognitive biases that really frustrate our decision really can get a foothold. Like they can come in and wedge themselves into that uncertainty, that gap that uncertainty is creating between the relationship between decision quality and outcome quality and really wreak a lot of havoc in our decision-making. And, you know, as I was kind of thinking about that, that's just what most of life's decisions look like. We're mostly dealing with poker-like environments. We're not really dealing a lot with chess-like environments, even for something as simple as going through an intersection, because we all know we can go through a red light and not get a ticket or get in an accident. We can go through a green light and really bad things can happen. And then when you get into things that are more complicated, like, you know, who are you going to hire into a position or what should your strategy be or what product do you think you're going to develop or what's the chances of success if you do X, Y, or Z? Now we start to get into things that really, really resemble poker and sometimes even beyond the uncertainty of what poker might offer. And that's really, you know, this is really kind of like what I was really interested and in, I have been interested in really exploring. I love that. So I want to double click a little bit more on that, the dis, the complex decisions business. You know, in business so often, a good decisive leader is perceived as somebody that's it's black or white. I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to stick by it. And you talk about the fact that using the words, I'm not sure, are actually probably the most powerful words you can use. Why is that? Well, because you're not sure. <laughs> I mean, I know that no sounds familiar, but basically this, this is kind of how I think about it is that I think that we're afraid to say that we're guessing when we're making judgments, but anytime that there's uncertainty, in other words, there's hidden information, which is true of almost any decision, certainly complex decisions that leaders might be making you know, and there's luck involved. The, the answer is you're not, you can't possibly be sure how it's going to turn out. And in some sense, you will be guessing. So to say anything else, to say, I know for sure, I know uh, this is right or wrong. This is how I'm going to guarantee you, this is how it's going to turn out. I know this is the right decision. None of those are accurate representations of the world or, or the state of your knowledge or your ability to guarantee anything. So, you know, I just have, I don't know, maybe a controversial opinion that the more accurate your representation of the world, the better your decisions will be as a result. So that doesn't mean that I, I shift all the way to saying like you shouldn't even try because you're not sure. In fact, just the opposite, that once you acknowledge that the judgments that you're making are subjective, right? That we're doing these forecasts and they're gonna be subjective because of this lack of knowledge that we have whenever we're making a decision. What you can start to do is say, I'm not gonna accept just because we're not sure that we should not try, that I'd just be guessing that there's no point or that I should go with my gut because who, who knows, you know, I'm just going to go with whatever my gut tells me. And instead you should focus on this word that we have for, for things, which is educated guess. And to say, look, we have imperfect information for sure, right? Or the information that goes into any decision that we make is not complete, but it is also not zero. And our job as a decision maker should be somewhat singular in focus in terms of top line item, which is how much educated can we get into our guess? Because the more educated we can get into that guess, 
the more accurate our representations of the world are going to be, the closer we're going to get to what objectively is true of the world. And that's going to make our decisions better. So, so we can really do that with anything, right? When, when we're making a decision and we're trying to think about what's the best option. And if I choose an option, what do I think might result from that option? You know, how, how might the world unfold? I want to start thinking about two things. One is what are the things that I know that can inform the decision? And what are the things that I could find out? That really unlocks a lot in, in terms of decision-making is this unwillingness to accept either I know for sure, or I shouldn't try because I don't know for sure. And to really live in that space in between and really strive to just build better models of sort of what's objectively true of the world. Well, and that's a perfect transition because your next book that you uh, you have coming out is How to Decide, you know, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. What led you from thinking in bets to wanting to do this as your next book? Oh, gosh. I, you know, I, most of my best stuff comes from conversations with people who have interacted with my work. And I have to say How to Decide came from those conversations. And the reason is that, so, you know, I, we can sort of think about the way that I think about thinking in bets is it's like a love letter to uncertainty. It's sort of saying, look, accept it. It exists. And the more that you kind of see the world accurately for what it is, the better off you're going to be. So let's, let's acknowledge that the uncertainty is there in these two forms, luck and hidden information. And let's try to kind of think about how that messes our decision making up and, and how that really frustrates our decision making. And then, you know, there was a little bit of like, how might you address it? Right. There was like a, I would say sprinkle, a sprinkle of that. Here are some things that you could think about that might help improve the situation since we're making decisions under these conditions. But what I got from a lot of readers was, man, you know, I, I'm all in on this. Like, I get it. You've convinced me or, you know, obviously I'm not the only one writing about this, but I've read a lot of stuff in this space, including your work. And there is a lot of uncertainty and I think it's a really interesting topic to think about. And I recognize how that frustrates my decisions. So how do I make a good decision? How do I do it? I said, Oh, well, that's kind of an interesting book to write. <laughs> and so that's, you know, so, so I started off actually just thinking, well, I'm going to write a, I'm going to write a workbook to go along with thinking in bets. And then I realized very quickly, like, I don't, I don't actually, I've got a kind of a lot to say about what a good decision process looks like, I think. And a lot of places to go that when you start to get down into the practicalities of making decisions. So for example, how would you figure out when the decision is of a, of a type that you should take lots of time with it, or a decision is a type that you should, that you can go actually quite fast on. These were topics that were brand new and you know, obviously wouldn't work in like a workbook for thinking and that's kind of format. So what it ended up morphing into was how to decide, which is a book that has some interactive qualities to it. It's not really, I wouldn't call it a workbook, but it's got thought experiments and exercises and decision tools and checklists and, and uh, wrap ups and things like that, that really kind of codify and help you to instantiate the principles that are in the book. But it goes into like a lot of new material with an eye with a real focus on practicality, which is in a practical sense, how can you actually make better decisions and what would that process look like? And that's really what was motivating the book was that I found that the people 
people who had read my previous work felt that that was lacking. And I felt like I wanted to repair that, you know, that lacking. I'm, I'm not sad that it wasn't in Thinking Bets because that book would have been way too long otherwise. But, you know, they did point out to me that there was there was more to be said in the space. And, and I felt like maybe I could say something interesting about it. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So I want to dive in some of those uh, areas where you have more to say about it. So, you know, one of the spaces is I always find myself gravitating towards this concept of what Malcolm Gladwell described as, you know, the 10,000 hours of practice. But in the book, you go into this paradox of experience and what experience can actually interfere with learning good lessons. What do you mean by that? Here's the problem that we have is that experience is certainly necessary for learning. Like if we want to think about how would we become a better decision maker, uh, certainly experiencing the outcomes of your decisions, you know, should be helpful. In, in fact, I would say it's a, it's a somewhat necessary component of becoming a better decision maker. But the paradox is that any individual experience that you have can really interfere with learning. So why? Well, really for two reasons. One has to do with resulting and the other has to do with hindsight bias. Um, so I can show you kind of the interaction between the two with one story. So um, if we think about the 2016 election, we all know what the result was, right? Donald Trump won. And we know that the, there were three very significant states that he, he won, which were Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And he won those three states by quite narrow margins, actually, but he won them. And we know that, that also know that Clinton did not really campaign very much in those states. She was focusing more on like New Hampshire and, and Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, places where the polling had been what appeared to be much tighter than in those three states. So, okay, so th so that's all just sort of like, uh, I just gave you historic his history, but then we can look at the way that the public has responded to that. And there's basically two things that ha have happened. One is that it, it seems to be generally agreed upon that her campaign strategy was terrible. And it also seems to be generally agreed upon that it was terrible and everybody knew it at the time. So that's an extra layer that everybody knew this thing at the time. So the first problem, like, okay, we can, you know, her campaign strategy was terrible because she happened to lose those three states. Well, that, that's the resulting problem, which is that there was a bad outcome. And we assume that that tells us something really significant about, about whether the decision-making was good or not. And that, that kind of goes back to the chess versus poker problem. So I'm going to just ask you to do the thought experiment really quickly. Let's say that Clinton had won the election do you think that three and a half later, years later, people would be still writing and talking about how terrible her campaign strategy was? Probably not. Probably not. 
So, you know, the problem, of course, is, with resulting is that we think that the result tells us something more than it actually does. And then it tells it, and then you can see how that could then translate into like, how are people running campaigns in the future where they may be taking actually quite bad lessons from this? Because at the time, what we know is that uh, there was a polling error now. We know, we know that after the fact in those three states. But it wasn't like a national polling error. The national polling actually came out pretty well. And it wasn't actually consistent state to state because Florida and New Hampshire, for example, were both polling as toss-ups. And indeed, they ended up being toss-ups. One tipped over to Trump and the other tipped over to Clinton. So there seemed to be some sort of problem with um, these three states. And the issue with polling errors, weirdly, is that uh, you don't know that there's a polling error until you take the vote. Because that's the only way to find out that there's a polling error is to see that the vote doesn't line up with the polls. And of course, that occurs after the fact. So this is this is a very good example of resulting. But now we can add an, into this thing the hindsight bias problem, which is that everybody knows that the campaign strategy was horrible. So I, I just did a Google search and I just searched like, OK, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Clinton, 2016, something like that. And indeed, like, you know, hundreds of articles come up saying, oh, her campaign strategy was so terrible, blah, blah, blah. But what's really interesting is that the date of the first really highly critical article comes on November 9th, 2016. And as you might recall, the, the election was on November 8th. So this idea that everybody knew beforehand is pretty absurd because we're in an election cycle right now. Like, What's more crowdsourced in terms of people like picking apart strategy than an election, national election campaign for president? If people really thought that the decision making was so horrible and she was making such a grave error, there would have been tons and tons and tons of thought pieces that were written about this prior to November 8th. And yet there's not. In fact, the two most critical articles I could find in regard to the guards to those states were criticisms of Trump for campaigning in those states. So you can see how this, this is, that's hindsight bias, which is that we think we should have known or that we did know. So you can see how this is kind of colliding here. Everybody thinks Clinton should have known. And also everybody seems to think that they did know it beforehand. And yet there's no evidentiary record of this whatsoever. So now we have this kind of collision in this one narrative of, you know, resulting in hindsight bias. And what we can see is that if you think about that, this is like super crowdsourced and I can actually rule this stuff. Think about how much you're doing this. We have this national fever dream about this. How much are you doing this in your own life where, you know, you're getting outcomes and all of a sudden you're, you're doing this resulting, you're deriving lessons about the decision quality from that, that don't make sense, or, or you're misremembering the past. And thinking that you knew things that you didn't or that you should have known things that you didn't or when you're looking at other people's decision making and their outcomes, you're over indexing on the quality of the outcome. You're not really looking at the decision quality. You're thinking they should have known stuff that they couldn't have known or that you knew things that they didn't know and you saw it when they didn't. And all of this stuff happens to create the paradox of experience, which is that these individual experiences really can interfere with our learning. Over the long run, it can be very helpful, but that's not the way that we process outcomes. We process them in sequence. We don't wait. We don't wait to aggregate a large enough N in order to say something significant about it. It's not like we're flipping a coin 10,000 times and then deciding whether the coin is fair. We're deciding that as we go. So diving into that, you know, you use the words no better when you talk in there. And, you know, one of my favorite interviews was uh, after the financial crisis in 08. 
Charlie Rose sat down with Warren Buffett talking about everything that was going on. And he asked uh, Warren, should wise people have known better? And Buffett responded that, you know, people should always know better, but we have a natural progression of getting caught up in the silliness and not being willing to call it out for what it is. Why do you think in, you know, these moments of hype, et cetera, good decision-making just goes out the window? Well, because good decision-making goes out the window all the time. I mean, that's sort of my, my, my snarky answer to that. You know, obviously we get this problem because a lot of the times we're drafting off of other people in or in order to figure out if a decision is good or bad. And we can think about that just in terms of, you know, do you go through a green light or a red light? I don't think most people have done a cost benefit analysis of that, but they just assume that that's the correct choice because that's kind of, they feel like that's sort of settled in terms of, you know, by society that's settled. So we take a lot of cues by, by what other people are doing around us. and. So what happens is that very often, you know, the market's right. And, you know, particularly when there's a lot of like information liquidity, we, you know, we kind of assume, well, you know, if the market kind of says this is true, that that's the price, right? That, that the quality of the decision is kind of priced in as, it, as it's been crowdsourced in a liquid market. So, you know, I mean, I, I think that it's not a terrible heuristic, you know, I mean, because we can't sort of, we can't do cost benefit analysis on every single thing that we decide about. So it's not the worst heuristic, but it is a bad heuristic when it's something that you're really betting on that you actually need to be thinking it through for yourself and really looking at it from different perspectives. And that's where we can get into trouble because we end up relying on these proxies for whether, you know, a decision is good or bad or whether we want to be doing something or not. And when, when something weird happens, so that the the market in general is wrong, so that the proxies are actually giving us bad signal, we we don't spend enough time considering that the signal might be poor because we aren't thinking it through necessarily so well for ourselves. And this becomes particularly problematic when whatever the signal is telling us is something that we want to be true, which I think is actually the broader problem here. When the world is telling, you know, when we have some sort of strongly held belief, which can occur either because like it's a, it's some sort of signal of our identity or because we've acted on that belief in the past in particular, uh, we can become very entrenched in those beliefs. If we, if we have some sort of subject matter expertise in that area that we've acted upon and particularly if we've had success with making decisions, that's sort of driven by that subject matter expertise that has to do with like the, the very strong models that we might have of the world what ends up happening is we get kind of like pulled down into the trenches of kind of our own models and the stronger a model of the world, particularly if we've had success and the more identity driven it is, the more it's become sort of part of who we are, the deeper that trench is. And then as there's information out in the world that might give us signal that maybe we should be altering our model. I think that if we think intuitively about what would happen. It's like, okay, well, there's corrective information out there. Obviously we're going to alter our model, but that's not actually what happens. What happens is that we pull the information down into the trench with us and we'll, we'll sort of massage the information in order to, to fit with our model as opposed to massage our model to fit with the information, which is really what we'd prefer to be doing. So that's kind of like where, where things can, can really start to go wrong in that way. So the last question I want to kind of talk upon is uh, you started a nonprofit called the Alliance for Decision Education. And 
as so many of us are doing at home education and dealing with this crazy world we're in, you know, education is taking on a different meaning. What is decision education and how can parents, educators, everything in between start bringing this decision making into our to our children? Yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. So decision education, really, you can think about it pretty simply as basically you can think about it as like, what do you know? And then what do you do? Right. So it's anything that has to do with how, how would you teach someone to construct a good decision from how do you teach people to think about what might be true of the world to teaching statistics and probability to understanding your own habits to once you sort of have some idea of what's true, then what would you do about it? So, you know, what's true and what to do is the simplest way, again, to think about it. So what we're really trying to do is skill people up in the, in the way that, you know, obviously there are lots of behavioral economists, behavioral psychologists who have really been thinking about decision-making. And this is something that businesses think all the time is how do we educate our workforce to be better decision-makers? And the problem is that none of that really seeps down into K through 12 education. Um, where we're really teaching people, where we're really trying to teach kids, like, how do you think about your own decisions and how would you construct a great decision? And it, it shows itself in like some pretty simple ways. Like as an example, it's a requirement in high school to take trigonometry, but it is not a requirement to take statistics and probability. But if you think about what's, what do you really need to make great decisions? It would be the statistics and probability piece. What do you need to be a great decision? you know, engineer, well, okay, so you need some trigonometry at that point, but that seems something that would be perfectly fine to go teach in college for those people who really want to become engineers. Otherwise, it's not a particularly useful form of mathematics to be teaching. So what we're trying to do is start to get decision education really in every grade from K through 12 so that kids can start to think about, you know, what is true. And then once I think about what is true, what would I do with that in order to create a better life for myself because it what is your life it's only two things luck which you don't have a control over and the quality of your decisions so if we can start getting in early with kids and really teaching them to be better decision makers that will actually have a long-term impact on their outcomes that they're just more likely to have better outcomes in their lives and what we believe is that you know better decisions lead to better individual lives which then lead to a better society so we think that sort of at the base of this this is something that's really important to be promoting in schools you know in the in the same way that you know now we think about social emotional learning in the same way that this is something that that's sort of whole child skill that's incredibly important to be teaching kids and we think decision education is right along with that and if a, a parent wants to uh, convince their school system of that same thing. How can they uh, engage with the Alliance for Decision Education to help drive that home? Yeah. So please, please go to the Alliance for Decision Education.org and, you know, contact us, find out about us. We are a field builder. So we're happy to connect any schools to programs that would actually promote decision education. I mean, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do is, is really toggle a lot of different levers in order to create demand, which is really what happened with social emotional learning as well in terms of getting that into schools. So parents should be demanding this for their kids. Businesses should be demanding this of the employees that are, that are, that they're hiring, that, that they have these kinds of skills. Colleges should be demanding this of the students that are, that are incoming, that they've gotten decision education. And if, if we can start to 
create, you know, create that kind of pressure to get this into schools, it will happen. And in fact, it's kind of the only way to move it into schools because we know that schools are very slow moving in terms of your ability to really shift. And a lot of it just comes from demand and particularly demand from parents. So if you think this is something you want your kid to get, please come visit the site. And we have a petition there that you can sign. And then you can also find out about programs there and other nonprofits that that would be offering programs in this space in order to, to get that into your school. Perfect. Well, that is a great place to end on. So thank you so much for taking the time. And thank you, more importantly, for uh, writing the books that you have over the last uh, the last two, because they have been truly game changers in the world of business. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And again, I apologize for having been late, but such is life. Indeed. Well, thank you again and uh, look forward to talking again soon, I hope. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.